Hey, we're in week three of, of, of Advent, um, and Advent uh, meaning preparing for, or like Douglas alluded to, making room for the arrival of Jesus. Kids are dismissed. <laughs> Thank you very much. Making room for the arrival of the King of Kings. In week one, Pastor Dan helped us see that hope is found paradoxically when we surrender to Jesus. See, the world thinks that when you surrender to Jesus, you lose your freedom, right? You lose hope. But that's not the case. When we surrender to Jesus, we surrender to his kingship. And we allow him to reform us into creatures that will live better, more successfully in the new creation, the, the life, life to come. Right? He's, he's creating in us new creatures of love in action. Not love in thought, not love in doctrine, not, but love with hands and feet. Um, Jesus is ushering in this new kingdom. And last week, we looked at peace. John the Baptist reminds us not to be surprised by the entrance and the circumstances surrounding the arrival of the Prince of Peace. Rest assured, he comes in in a very, very common way. You know, Douglas made that point pretty clear. He comes in a very, very common way, but it's not like any kingdom you've ever seen or experienced before. Last week, we looked at the first couple verses of chapter 3 in Luke, and we looked at the kingdom that the people had been experiencing. It was a kingdom of backstabbing, of stealing, of thievery, of murder. That, that, that was the kingdom, the kingdoms of this world into which Jesus is ushering in a brand new creation right in the midst of this old, broken creation. And today, week three, I want to look at joy. And it's a joy that can only be attained through something called metanoia. Metanoia, great Greek word, metanoia, easy to produce, love these Greek words. Some of them are next to impossible to produce. I don't know if you've ever met somebody or hung around somebody who recently went through a life-altering experience, right? Many times it's a, it's a near-death experience, but it doesn't have to be, right? They, they could have experienced something in nature, something relationally that that as you watch their life after this experience, they change. They, they just, like, they become different people entirely. What was once important becomes not important, right? And the unimportant things become incredibly important to them. I don't know if you've ever met somebody like that. My dad, um, he loves IU, Indiana University. Anything IU, my dad loves because that's where he went to school. In fact, we, he went to school with all six of us. We lived in a little two-bedroom apartment um, on Indiana University campus while he got his degree. And so our family is infused with a love for Indiana University. His gravestone has IU on it. <laughs> Somewhat appropriate. Um, so when he was in his last months, I got to get up there and see him. Um, and I knew that there was an IU basketball game on, and, and that's the top of the list for my dad. Football, yeah, because they stink. But IU basketball, that, that was worth watching. And I said, Dad, some you know, IU basketball is on TV. It blew me away. He said, I don't feel like watching it. Do you not feel well? No, no, I'm feeling fine. I'd just rather talk with you. That's metanoia. Something happened in my dad's life, changed everything. What was important is no longer important. Right? People in relationships kind of took the place of IU basketball, never thought it possible. People who are experiencing metanoia, they see things in a whole new way, a complete reorientation, a complete transformation of one's life. That's, that's metanoia. One day on the banks of the Jordan River, 
Um, the same river, kind of keep this in the back of your mind, that the Israelites had crossed so many years before, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? They, they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. And they immediately have a great battle, Jericho, and then <laughs> everything goes south from there. Um, that same river, Jordan, John the Baptist is baptizing people. But it wasn't a ceremonial baptism like for cleanliness and uncleanliness, not necessarily sin, but just, right, touch the dead body, whatever. And he wasn't, it wasn't a baptism converting to Judaism. This was a baptism represented by the word, and we have the word repentance, but the Greek word is, is, is metanoia, right? John the Baptist was offering them a shot at metanoia, a shot at living a whole new life with whole new principles, whole new guidelines. This is what John the Baptist was offering them. I'm going to start at the end of my text this morning. If you look online, my text is Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 22. And I'm going to close with this, but it's only to kind of beg the question, why why were people being baptized and why was Jesus baptized? So this is Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Again, that's kind of the end of the story. It's like, okay, so where are you going to go from there, Pastor? Um, again, I, I do this to beg the question, why were people flocking to be baptized by John? What was the draw? If they knew that they were already good Jewish people, some of them, because some of them weren't Jewish that arrived out there, right? They weren't converting, right? They weren't ceremonially, but the crowds, crowds were coming out to be baptized. What, why, what, did, what was John offering? What was John offering? And the, the bigger question is, why was Jesus baptized when our traditional understanding, and it's accurate when I say traditional, an accurate understanding of repentance, what did he need to repent for, right? Our, our Christian tradition says that he never sinned, so what's he repenting, repenting of? So I want to talk, just kind of just pause for just a moment and talk about um, sorrow. See, we've, we've got this idea from an English translation that repentance is all about sorrow, now, I don't want to negate that. I'm not saying it's not about sorrow, but the fact of the matter is many times people turn to Christ and there's no sorrow involved, right? They just saw that they had been living a life that was not producing joy and happiness, and then they saw Jesus, they heard the message of Jesus, and they thought, I want some of that. It's not that they were being bad or evil, and now they're feeling really, really bad about it, but they just recognized this guy is offering the words of life, and everyone else around me has been offering nothing but death and breakup and division so again, sorrow is a big part of it. But to be honest, I, I know people who have accepted Christ and they didn't feel sorry at first. They didn't know, right? The Holy Spirit hadn't had time enough to say, hey, right? The way you've been treating this person in your life, that's wrong. They have no idea. They just knew that the way they were treating somebody wasn't producing joy in their life. So again, when we say repentance, I'm going to talk about repentance, say metanoia. It can and oftentimes does start with a deep sorrow, like I've been, I've been hurting my Savior, right? I've been working against my Savior. I've been discreating when he's trying to create, like working against him. But I just want to say, when we meet people in our world and we start, start off with, well, you need to be sorry, most people, oh, I'm not sorry about anything. What are you, what are you putting on me? The fact of the matter is, people need to recognize that it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to start with sorrow, but more often than not, sorrow is a part of it. Again, either initially they recognize, or maybe years down the road, and the Holy Spirit slowly working on them, and they recognize, oh, I, I am sorry for that. I didn't know. 
I, I, I didn't know. So when I accepted you, Christ, I had nothing to be sorrowful about. I just, I just saw a new way to live. I saw a way that I could be happy in my life and that the relationships in my life would be filled with life instead of death. So again, metanoia. Um, again, did Jesus need to repent? If we look at that word and just broaden our definition just a little bit, it's not that he needed to be sorrowful, but that he was leading people into a brand new way of life. That's, that's why he went into the waters, right? Let me, let me back up just a little bit. To begin with, John the Baptist was claiming that in Jesus Christ, everybody got a do-over, right? Everybody got a do-over. And this everybody, I think it bothered a few people because this everybody, that, that, that everybody meant that Gentiles, sinners, right? Everything that the Jewish people looked down their nose at and in fact, you're going to see in the reading as, as our chapter continues, the crowds will show up. And there are some people who show up honestly seeking, but there's a whole bunch of, I think, church people, Pharisees, who are showing up going, hey, wait, 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 wait. This is, this is not everybody is worthy. Right? We've got some messes out here. They're not worthy of love. Right? They've made bad decisions. They're, they're worthy of judgment. So my, 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 my thought is a, a big crowd that came out to see John the Baptist was just coming in front. Who is he letting in, right? Who is he letting, who is he making room for that we should not be making room for because they're bad, bad people. But everybody got to do over. Everybody will get to experience metanoia, right? A new direction in life, a new way to live. Their eyes would be open to the important stuff, right? They would be freed from the hate and the violence and the darkness of the kingdoms of their world, Again, that we looked at in verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 3. Where their ancestors had crossed the Jordan River and failed. With, with Jesus' arrival, John the Baptist is basically pointing out the fact that they could recross the river. Right? Start all over. Right? The last time you all crossed the river, you blew it. But Christ is leading us and leading these people. And he's going he's gonna to cross the River Jordan. He's going to do it all over again. And he's going to lead us. We get a do-over. We get to go into that Jordan River as those ancient Israelites did. And where they failed, we can succeed because Jesus is leading the way this time. Right? He was baptized. Not that he needed to say sorry for anything, but that he needed to lead the way into this new creation. Verse 21 22. And as he was praying, heaven opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now you, now you look at that, and, and if you're just, you're just reading it along, you, you can't help but thinking this is kind of a highbrow a British way of saying I love you, <laughs> like dad and son don't even know each other. You know, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Like my dad never told me that. He said he loved me and he hugged me, right? There was, and, and I read this and, 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 and we're, we tend to think, oh, this is just like incredibly stilted religious language, and, but it's not. I want to show you something just truly amazing about this. This simple little line that God speaks, this voice from heaven Right? This, this, is, this is what we hear, but what the crowd heard and what, what Jesus heard um, was the continuation of what God said. What God is doing right here, he's quoting two Old Testament passages. 
right? And in all the people and all the crowd, they knew their Jewish scripture. Jesus knew his scripture, right? And all God had to do is say the first line, and everyone else, they knew the rest of the psalm. And then he, 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 he repeats something from the book of Isaiah, and everybody in the crowd, they were able to re- fill in the rest of chapter 42 that we're going to look at. Right, so Jesus says, you are my son, and that's actually from Psalm chapter 2. Take a look at it when you get home. And in that psalm, God is talking about a, a, a ruler that's one day going to come, and he's going to bring justice, and he's going to rule with righteousness. And so all the crowd heard, and all we hear is, you are my son. And what the people heard, though, and what Jesus heard was the rest of the psalm. This is the guy. This is the one that you need to follow. This is that king that our Heavenly Father is referring to in Psalm 2. And then with you, I am well pleased. This is from um, Isaiah chapter 42. And I'm, I'm going I'm to read that in just a little bit. Um, but, and we read it earlier. Le- Leanne read it, verses 1 through 4, Isaiah chapter 42. And it's, it's, it's filled with hope, right? It, it's talking about one day this mighty king, this righteous king would one day arrive on the scene and rule with righteousness and, and, and deal with corruption and evil and violence. And everybody in the crowd, including Jesus, right, they, they, that's, that's what they heard, not just, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And again, starts out, starts out really, really nice, starts out just filled with hope, right? And as any first century reader of the book of Luke would quickly find out in chapter 4, right, after finding out in chapter 3, that, they're gonna, that Jesus is going to lead them. They're going to get to recross the Jordan River where the Israelites had failed so many years before. They're now going to be able to do it, right, and secede this time. A first century reader would go to chapter 4 and they would quickly find out that Jesus got tempted in the wilderness. How long? 40 days. How long did the Israelites wander around in the desert being unfaithful and not trusting God? 40 years. Luke is saying, look, where you all failed, you were not faithful, you didn't believe in God in the, uh, the wilderness, you complained, you moaned and groaned, oh my goodness, you were horrible. Christ, he's the new Moses. Literally, he's the new Moses leading the new exodus into a brand new creation. And in 40 days, he was able to produce and able to remain faithful and completely trusting God where the people had failed. So they're reading this and they're just thinking, wow, this is the guy. Wherever we failed, he succeeded. Got to have a part of that. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us to be a part of this brand new creation where the old creation, we blew it. This new creation, he's going to lead the way and we're going to succeed this time. We're going to succeed this time. And again, the people in the crowd... Right? They've got to arrive after thinking through Psalm 2 and, and thinking through Isaiah chapter 42. They've got to conclude, like, this is the guy, as if a voice from heaven speaking didn't <laughs> seal the deal like 10 minutes earlier. <laughs> like, oh, you had me at your voice. <laughs> didn't need to explain anything else. Listen once more to Isaiah chapter 42. It says this, this is verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Right? Exactly what God said as Jesus comes up out of the water in the dove descent. I will put my spirit on him, right? And he will bring justice to the nation. Sounds great. It sounds incredible. And I'm going to continue with, with verses 2 through 4 in Peterson's message paraphrase because it makes it just a little bit more clear what is, tends to be not as clear in, in our version, the NIV. Um, 
great news if it ever comes to pass, right? This, this is what the people are thinking. He won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches and gaudy parades. He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and the insignificant. I mean, we, we should just, just pause right there, and about 90% of us sign me up, right? Sign me up. My world has decided that I am significant, that I'm small, that, I, that they have no room for me, but this guy's got room for me. And he calls himself the son of God. He's making room for me. But he'll steadily and firmly set things right. Verse 4, he won't tire out and quit. He won't be stopped until he's finished his work to set things right on earth. Far-flung ocean islands await expectantly for his teaching. I don't know if that helped make sense a little bit more of, of, of Isaiah chapter 42. Again, again, it sounds all great. It's just hope-filled, right? But, but we keep reading. The, the situation in Israel is, is, is dire. I mean, it's, it's really, really bad. This all sounds great. And, and most psalms kind of start out with a lament, end up with, with praise. This one flip-flops, right? Starts off with great news, but the great news is only great news and it's only news because of the second half of the story. It's horrible. <laughs> it's just horrible. Um, it ends up being a rather harsh condemnation of Israel. The psalmist sings the praises of this future king only because the ancient Israelites, who were his first messengers, as you read this chapter, they had failed just, they'd failed so miserably. So listen to some of the selected texts. I'm, just, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to kind of bump and through it. Um, I, the Lord, have called you, the, this, this future king, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. What did Jesus say? I'm, I'm the light of the world. Verse 7, uh, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Right? So this was the plan. This, this, Isaiah saw this, that God was one day going to send a, a ruler and, and, and the, the, the eyes of the blind would be opened and the, the captives would be freed and released from the dungeons who, who sit in darkness. This is what the political and the religious leaders of Israel were supposed to do. But they failed miserably. Right? They got all selfish. Right? Ooh, we're special and nobody else is. And so God must not love them as much, and so we need to be careful about, you know, playing willy-nilly with God's love because so it's, it's valuable, so it's really only... Pro- just weird. It just, it just got weird. It just got weird in all different ways. <sighs> but this promise, and again, these are the words of God at the baptism of Jesus, and, and God only says the opening of the psalm and the opening of, of Isaiah chapter 42, but the people fill in the rest of the information in their heads. They, they see, they instantly, they see what God is trying to say by just starting those two lines. This is why people were flocking to John, right? To hear better news, to hear a more excellent way. But here's the situation back in ancient Israel, right? And it hadn't changed in all those years up to when God brings up Isaiah chapter 42 again at the baptism of Jesus, right? Maybe the people hadn't thought about Isaiah for a couple hundred years, whatever, and then God brings it up again. I'm going to pick up at verse 18 of Isaiah's prophecy. Again, 500 years earlier than Jesus. God didn't have to say it, right, because the people filled in the blanks. They filled in the rest of the passages. Here's what, here's here's the rest of it. Here's, Here's the ugly. Here, you deaf. Look, you blind and see. 
Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? By the way, Henry, you've been watching the news. Mary, did you know, is getting a lot of baggage on internet because this rhetorical Hebrew way of, of teaching a lesson, it asks rhetorical questions. And, in, and on the internet, again, maybe you guys have seen this, people are, it's mansplaining, right? It's dumbing down the message to poor Mary, who's a woman who can't possibly explain. And so the author is saying, Mary, did you know? And a lot of people are on the internet saying, this is just horrible. This is sexist. Stop it. Just, just stop it. Right? This is a Hebrew way of asking a question and helping us see something, right? It's not mansplaining. <laughs> okay. Get off that, Jerry. Um, right? This is a rhetorical question. It has God telling Israel what he thinks of them. Right? If you look at the passage, and again, I didn't include this. It's kind of a long chapter. Right? God has been biting his tongue. It's like he's wanted to say something. He's like, oh, just give them a little bit. Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. And finally he reaches the point where he's got to talk. He's got to, he's got to speak. Right? Tell them what he thinks of them. And again, as I read this, I want you to imagine him speaking to you. Just kind of put yourselves, because we, we have this horrible habit of, of placing ourselves above the Israelites. Oh, we would never have done that. Yeah, we would have. You know we would have. Come on. Let's be honest. So, so allow this message from Isaiah to speak to you also, just, just for a moment here. You've seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you don't listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious, right? Like Israel, the question i got to ask is, is, before I continue speaking, have we failed to make room for Jesus? Right? We make room for everything else, but do we make room in our hearts and our lives for Jesus? Let me keep reading, verses, verse 22. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits and hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Right? Basically, this is a people who have decided not to make room for God, and they now sit in darkness, enslaved and blinded, and nobody is there to save them. And this is the cry of Isaiah. This is the cry of Isaiah chapter 2. Who can save them? Because they're so stubborn. <laughs> they're, they got eyes, but they don't see. They got ears, but they just won't listen. Or obey, really. You can hear it, but decide not to obey. Until John the Baptist begins announcing the arrival of Jesus, right? Everything changes at this point, right? The arrival of God's kingdom on earth. Finally, a ruler who will speak on their behalf, right? He won't push away the downtrodden, the bruised reed, right? He won't smother the smoldering wick, right, that life that's barely hanging on. No, man, he will die for that wick to make sure it burns again. Where the rulers of our world, ah, just let it die. It's not important anyway. Let the bruised people die, you know, survival of the fittest. We'll be a stronger nation this way. What? Somebody finally with authority to free them, right, to send them back home where they've been living in, in slavery, in, in exile. In Luke chapter 3, verse 7, we pick up from last week, John's been announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. John said to the crowds coming out to, baptize, to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? It's like, 
Great start to a speech, John. Like, oh, yeah, I want to keep hearing this guy. But he's, he's just really being really, really honest with them. I mean, if you've hung out in the desert, this is something. I, I'm not a desert person, but I'm getting used to it up here. Apparently, when there's a fire, like all the snakes and scorpions, everything, they come out. They come out of hiding, right? You, you got this little mass migration of little tiny animals when you have a fire in the desert. And this is what John is saying because he's, he's seen this before. Right? When something new and amazing comes up, all the people, oh, they're just looking after whatever's the new and bright and shiny. Right? He recognizes that they're just chasing after the new best thing. They're really not searching. And so he immediately, he launches into them very, very honestly, and this is the way God saw them. He said it when God, when Jesus was lift, coming up out of the water, right? He, he said it in, in, in Isaiah chapter 42. You people, you people, you brood of vipers. Again, I've seen this happen when a new church opens in town, right? Local pastors quickly find out, right, who has given their hearts, had made room in their hearts for this church, and who is just, eh, new preacher, preacher new, new church. Hey, let's go check that out. Let's go check out the, right, the new thing. John, John saw that, and he called it for what it is. But as we read on, many did properly respond. Luke, verse 8, it says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. See, John is criticizing the way that they'd become dependent on their heritage. Right? They thought that would save them. That would give them the good life. And yet they are finding more and more, often and oftener, is it wasn't. It wasn't giving them the good life. This is why they were flocking to John, because the law wasn't giving them the life that they that's portrayed there. John's tone and the God had called his people to something more, right? The fruit, fruit they were producing wasn't the fruit that God's people produce, right? They were producing fruit that God's people don't produce. And that was the proof that they didn't have love in their hearts. They were just in it for the show, the show of piety, right, ever. Children of God produce the fruit of justice and compassion. Verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? All shows of piety and religiosity will not stand the test. Right? It just won't. All, every kind of false life is already dying. This is what this passage is saying. You know people like this. You know situations like this where people have not, they're not acting out of the love of God. They're acting out of very, very selfish interests. They're acting under the principles of the kingdoms of this world, and you watch around them, things die. They're already dying. Luke is telling the people, look, look around you. The way you've been living has been producing death. The ax is already at the root, folks. Look around you. Trees are dying. Naturally and understandably, many in the crowd had been searching for real life. Right? They were downtrodden. They were sheep without a shepherd. And when they heard somebody with a good message, words of life, yeah, whether they were hiding under the rocks or not, man, they, they, they came out in droves. Immediately they wanted to know, well, what does this life look like? What, right? We've lived this life under these rules. This is what the law says. This is how much we're supposed to forgive. This is when we don't have to forgive anymore. This is the, the limit of our love. This, this, is, this is righteousness. And yet you're saying... There's something more. What does that look like? What, what would that even look like? The crowd asked. Well, let me read it. Verse 10, 11. Well, what should we do then, the crowd asked. 
John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share the one who has none with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Right? This new way of living, this new way of seeing life, generosity is the key, the absolute key. Right? If you've heard what I'm saying, this is, this is John saying, if you've, you've heard what I'm saying and you want what Jesus is offering, right, here's what it will look like. You will want to give your shirt to the person who has no shirt because you've got two shirts. You won't be forced. No law will tell you to do it. Right at the end of chapter 5 of Galatians, when, when Paul's listing off all the fruits of the Spirit, he says, against these, no law. Right? You cannot produce any of the fruit of the Spirit by way of the letter of the law. It simply won't work. You can't <laughs> was it, make a law out of love. It, it's, it's impossible. So here's the proof that it's not just for showy piety and for religiosity, right? Where the love of self seems to have been the focus before and how they can save themselves, right? The bloodline, verse 8. Um, the love of Jesus now drives them. The love of Jesus now drives them. And I want you to remember that. The love of Jesus now drives them to produce good fruit. The love of Jesus happens first. We take that love in and it drives us to love others, to love, to love others. By way of the love of Jesus, they're offered the experience of metanoia, a whole new way of living and a whole new way of arranging life. Verse 12 and 13, even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? He replied, don't collect any more than you're required. Pretty simple, right? Greed has no place in this new life. Tax collectors, they were the worst, right? They would take a little bit extra, line their pockets, but again, this call isn't the same as the call to generosity in the, in the previous verse, right? This embodies a, kind of the same spirit, but it, a little bit more of coveting, um, taken from others. That, that's just not a part of this new life. Another key transformation, it's not, it's not explicit here, but it's implied. You notice that tax collectors weren't asked to stop collecting taxes. That's huge. I, I, and again, it's not spelled out real clearly, but, it, but it's definitely implied John didn't ask them, hey, stop your evil work. Change the way you are and, and do the same work but with the love of Jesus, right? I'll change your heart, but I want you to go back to whatever you were doing in your world, and I want you to work differently now. I want you to work as if it were for the Lord, right? No longer for yourselves. Huge, huge transformation. And then finally, some soldiers asked him, well, what, what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money and accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay, right? The soldiers were the military arm of the Roman Empire. They were the ones with power, right? They could harass you. They could jack you every which way but loose and just walk away, right? No, no accountability whatsoever. They had that power over the people that they were ruling over. And yet John called them to something noticeably different, right? These soldiers were called to be content with what they had. Not stop being soldiers, not become Jewish. Just start living differently. Start living differently. Start seeing things differently. So we started with generous. We move quickly to don't be greedy and we end up with be content. Here's the key, folks. That's what I've been driving at for the last half hour, okay? If the love of Jesus is found at home in your heart, these things will become, and I use that word, and I'll say that word very, become second nature. Some people I know, I've met them, it's just like instant, 
They go from being very, very hateful people to most loving, like overnight. Other people, it takes a little while, right? And God's okay with that, right? That's the way the Holy Spirit works, right? He sees that you're stubborn, right? He can see that. We can all see it. And so he goes a little slower with some of you. But some of you are so nice and you're so wonderful, it's just like, boom, a light. The next morning, you're a different person. Bless you. <laughs> the rest of us, ah, a little bit more difficult. These things will become second nature as the Holy Spirit works with you. But you got to do your part too. The expectation is a life that's transformed, a life that bears good fruit, is one of contentment, generosity, kindness, compassion, and justice. Right? When we look at studies on happiness, we see this all over the place. The keys for people is the idea of being content and generous. That, that as, as soon as the psychologist, the psychiatrist, whatever, as, long as, as, as soon as they can land on those two things, it's like suddenly people are happy. As soon as they can get their eyeballs on being generous and being content. When we live this transformed life that bears good fruit, one of the consequences is joy. And again, it's one of those paradoxical things about this scripture. When I'm sitting at home and I'm thinking about all my pain and all my misery and all my problems, when I get to thinking about blessing somebody else and an opportunity to go bless somebody else, I don't know what it is, just a little bit of extra step, a little bit of extra skip in my step. I still feel the pain. I still feel lousy. I mean, all that kind of stuff didn't go away. But, man, there's something about this thing that when we love somebody who needs to be loved, the rest of the day, we've got a kind of a funny smile on our face, and people are like, what are you, high? What, what is your problem? No, man, I just, I just love somebody, and it felt so good. It felt so good. That's what he's talking about here. That's metanoia. When we receive joy, we receive joy when we help others, when we aren't constantly desiring more, and when we have compassion on others. Matthew records something that John says. I'm going to close with this. Matthew said this, Luke didn't. Again, the four Gospels, they don't lockstep all of their stories. It's four different people telling the story from their perspective. So they all include some things that the others don't include. And this is just one of those things. Matthew included this. As John saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And I want you to notice, read really closely, what is the order? I know it's written and you, and you, you arrive at a, in your mind very quickly that repent comes first and the kingdom of God comes second because that's kind of the way it rolls out. But if you look at the grammar, it's, it's actually flip-flopped, right? Because the kingdom of God has come near, repent, experience metanoia. Because Christ has given you new life, because your sins are forgiven, because of all of this, consider looking at life differently. If, you're, if your heart is filled after considering what Christ has done for you, I don't need to tell you to live your life differently. You will be compelled to live your life differently because the kingdom of God has come near. Again, don't think, well, if I repent... And if I say I'm sorry, God will make everything turn out great in my life. That's really not the order of things, and that's not the message. That's not the truth. The kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, live differently. Live differently than the way you've been living. Just being able to repent, right, to experience life the way it was supposed to be experienced, that in itself is a work of grace. But by our own means, we end up shutting out God, right? We run the risk of leaving no room for Jesus. 
See, Jesus is freeing people. That's what he's in the business of doing, if you were to call it a business. He's freeing people in order to become part of a whole new kind of family. Right? He's given us a legal, biblically acceptable divorce from the old life. So just leave it behind. This is your new life. Embrace it. In this new kind of family where there's always room for one more. There's always room for one more. I want to close with a word of prayer. There are some of you in this room, I believe you have never, never trusted Jesus. You, you've, you've loved him, you've read about him, but you've never made room for him in your life. It's like Douglas was saying. Like he's this picture on the wall, right, a book on a shelf. Little baby sitting in a manger. Oh, baby God. But I think some people here today have never taken that step. I, I trust you. Um, maybe it involves sorrow. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe this morning you just thought, wow, I, I want that life. I, I want to see if that's true. If I, if I do those kind of things, I want to see if it will bring me joy. Because the things that I've been doing have not brought me joy. Selfishness has not brought me joy. It's brought me nothing but misery. But I wonder. I wonder if the pastor's right. I wonder if... If I started living differently, would I have joy? Would I finally experience joy if I, if I started living like Jesus lived? So there's that crowd of you. And I think there's a few of you too here this morning that you've accepted Christ. But in this season, maybe you, COVID, I'll just say it, COVID has made room a little bit tight inside you. And there just might not be room for Jesus. And I, I don't know. This is... For me, I know when I sit at home, I just boil. Diane's like, you are turning into a grumpy old man. I sit in my chair. So this morning, maybe repentance. Maybe there is sorrow. But I want to pray for you all, and I, I want you to pray for yourselves too. Again, if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is, this is the time. Make room for Jesus this morning. And if you've crowded him out during this season of COVID, maybe you need to jettison some of that other COVID opinions and maybe be super, super careful about who you discuss it with just out of love, just out of love, just out of love. So whether you're in that boat where you, Christ is this brand new thing and you're like, oh, okay. Or maybe you're in that boat where he's been good to me and I've kind of crowded him out and I need to repent. I need sorrow. Do that right now. Just bow your heads. Father, Luke makes it so clear that you are offering a redo on life. We get to do everything all over again. We get to start fresh, brand new, nothing holding us back, no past, no you give us this opportunity, this opportunity to, to live a, a, a metanoia, to live a radically transformed life where people look at us and think, what in the world happened to that person? They're not the way they used to be. Father, that we would all, we would all be signs for people where they would look at us and go, wow, 
And that, that's, that's pointing to something. And Father, for those of us who, again, have just kind of squeezed you out this COVID season, uh, we repent. We bring ourselves back to the foot of the cross and the fact that you died for every opinion in this room. You died for them. Father, never let us forget that. Father, thank you for filling somebody's life this morning. I, I know you did, whether it was the first time or it's the millionth time because every day they say to you, fill me, fill me. Entirely sanctify me today. <coughs> so, Father, we, we thank you for all these things that have gone on here this morning, every step that somebody took. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, don't let them forget that step. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen.